Welcome to Mission Revive, a podcast dedicated to hope and healing through God's transforming love. We're your hosts, anchored in truth and armed with faith, are changing the world and reviving hearts with Jesus, one conversation at a time. Hi, welcome to this episode of the Mission Revive podcast. I'm Bob Newberry. I am a board member of Revive Hope and Healing Ministries, a collection of Catholic apostolates impelled by the Holy Spirit. My partner, as always, for today's podcast is Ann Costa, founder and executive director of Revive Hope and Healing Ministries. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're, we've overcome some difficulties to finally get this guest on air, and I'm very, yes. very pleased about it. So I yes. know it's going to be a, a magnificent discussion, and um, I think he's going to be a repeat guest because uh, I know that we have so much to talk about, and let's let's hear about who he is. That's Randall Smith, Dr. Randall Smith. Yep. He is professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, and he is a research fellow at the Civitas um, Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, He completed a BA in chemistry at Cornell College in Iowa. He's a master's degree in theology at the University of Dallas and a PhD in medieval studies and philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. And I can tell you that he is a, with all of those degrees, he is one of the most down to earth people I think I've, I've ever talked to with all the problems that we've had. So it's gonna be a, a rousing discussion he is also an author of several books, including How to Read a Sermon by Thomas Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. He's also written Aquinas, Bonaventure, and the Scholastic Culture of Medieval Paris. From a Here to Eternity, his newest book, Reflections on Death, Immorality, and the Resurrection of the Body. And he has a book coming out uh, called Mapping Bonaventure's Journey into God. And it's a commentary on St. Bonaventure's journey of the mind into God, which is going to be coming out from Cambridge University Press. His um, articles, this is how I found out about him, appear regularly in the Catholic media, including the New Oxford Review, the Catholic World Report, and the Catholic Thing. He's married to a brilliant poet, and I love poets, so I'm I'm sure she's uh, uh, magnificent. And the favorite uh, vehicle that he likes to drive is a school bus. You see what I mean? He's just a fun guy. Come on, come on and talk with us. Come on in, doctor. Hey, thank you. Can I just make one small correction? Uh, That was so uh, very kind of you to to say all that. Um, And, uh, but uh, just so people know, the book is uh, From Here to Eternity, uh, Reflections on Death, um, Immortality, I don't want people to think that I wrote a book on death and oh, immo- immorality. Is that what I said? Did I yeah, say immorality? Yeah. Anyway, so it's just, you know, like it's it's perfectly fine. I'm not sure people yes. would pay attention at all, really, actually. But uh, that's my experience teaching with students, you know, like, did they really hear any of it? But anyway, you just want to make sure that people like, he wrote about death and immorality. Okay, Anyway, but um, well, thank you for that. If they, if, they, if they bought the book wanting to know more about immorality, um, that, um, I don't. I don't think the book will tell them anything about they're gonna immorality. Be disappointed, huh? yeah, yeah, they're going to be disappointed. But it it will tell them why immortality is not a good idea. Anyway, and the resurrection of the body actually is a much better idea. Um, oh, that anyway. sounds that sounds very interesting. Um, so yeah, you were talking about your students, 
And that is really what predominantly drew me to you was an article that you wrote in 2017 for the Catholic thing in April. And it said, know thyself. You wrote a couple of articles on that topic, probably mm. right copiously about it. But it really drew me because um, I'm I'm studying the idea of um, self-love as a virtue and self-love as a vice and kind of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And that article I came across and you talked about your students and giving them a test, a test, you know, like mm -hmm. a self-assessment. How how well do they really know each other? I know themselves. And um, and you uh, and you said something that, that really triggered me that, that they they live their lives as if they're in a movie, right? Mm -hmm. And that was in 2017. And I thought to myself, you know, that was light years ago when you think about <laughs> it, right? When you think about what was like what the world is like in 2017 and what it's like now, can you tell us what's going on with those students? Do they know themselves? Well, no, I mean, this is a, as um, I mentioned to you that the the we reason, partially the reason this came out, I mean, the ultimate inspiration for this wasn't um, me so much, but I, I was inspired by uh, Pope John Paul II's encyclical Fides et Ratio. Um, he's been a major inspiration in my life and in my becoming Catholic, actually. But anyway, in Fides et Ratio, he talks about the fundamental questions of meaning, and it starts out, that encyclical, with that admonition, know thyself. And he says, quite rightly, that this was um, an admonition which was written over the, the doors, the portal of the temple at Delphi, um, the Oracle of Apollo, which was one of the most sacred uh, shrines in, in all of Greece that you were supposed to know thyself. And it was taken up then by the Platonic school. And it's been very important. Now, as I always say to my students, look, it was written over the doors of the temple not because it was the default setting of human beings, but as you know, a piece of advice, like you really ought to know yourself as though most people um, don't. Uh, and I also oftentimes have them read uh, Walker Percy's uh, or sections of Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. Um, and he's very good about showing people that, yeah, we really don't know ourselves very well. But part of what I then did um, as you saw in that reading, was I would have my students do a kind of um, uh, self-analysis, you know, self-knowledge survey. And at the time, I just pulled something out of, um, as years ago, I do something slightly different now, um, something out of Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective. Actually, I think I did the one out of his later book called First Things First. And I did that, A, because it was available, and B, uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of students come to college and they want to be successful in business. And I thought, well, here's a here's a major best-selling business book, guys, right? I mean, this isn't some theology thing. This is like, you know, a guy who does business, okay? Anyway, and so I said, so here's what Stephen Covey thinks is really important for people to do. And I, uh, I assigned them. I said, okay, look, I'm not going to grade this. I'm not even going to read it, but I, I want you to do it, okay? And um, what happened was, you know, uh, I would assign it like on a Thursday and then the next Tuesday it was due. And I would say, um, OK, how many people did the first things first, you know, self-knowledge uh, sort of thing? And there were questions like what would bring about quality of life results in this area? What would bring about quality of life results in this area? What do you think about yourself and these, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses, et cetera? And uh, I went over this is either just questions like this. OK, I mean, it's not. Anyway, so when I, we came to the next Tuesday, how many people did the self, you know, knowledge survey? And maybe one or two would kind of go, right? You know, and it was like no one had done it, right? And uh, I said, okay, now 
explain to me what was more important between Thursday and today over the weekend than thinking about quality of life results for yourself, right? Um, and, you know, then the couple of students had maybe started it or something. And I said, so you started it, but you didn't finish it. Why not? It was like, well, it was kind of hard. And I said, well, why was it hard, right? I mean, these weren't questions in integral calculus or something. These are just questions about yourself. And presumably you spent your whole life with yourself and you know, you know, you should know yourself. And so what's the problem? And so I said, well, look, I really want you to do this. And I'm going to ask you halfway through the semester, you know, like in another couple of weeks, and I'm going to ask you again, and I want you to do this. And again, nobody would do it wow. because it's a very difficult thing to do actually for most people. Yeah. What's, what's the difficulty doctor, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> do you want to look honest? I mean, look, uh, why do people, uh, you know, are, why are they resistant to going to confession? We might say, right. I mean, I mean, those of us who know confession and I always tell, tell my students this, you know, when I was growing up, I had, friends in my neighborhood who are Catholic. And I always thought confession was the craziest thing ever, right? Because who would tell their sins to some person, yes. you know? And then when you become Catholic, you realize, and I do tell my students this, like, look, it's it's the best thing ever. Yeah. Okay. But who isn't resistant in a way to, I mean, no matter how good you say to yourself, yeah, this is so important. This is so good. You're still resistant about like going and being honest with yourself about like, I did these things. Yeah. And I have these problems, you know, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, it's easier just to get law. I mean, in the same way, this is Stephen Covey's pretty good about this. It's the same way people get when businesses get involved in process and forget to think about goals, right? Yeah. Where am I headed and why yeah. am I headed that way? And what do I want to produce? Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Yeah, it's hard. We, forget, it's, we forget, don't we? I mean, yeah. in, in the span of a lifetime, which is a you know nanosecond to God, I mean, we forget where we're headed. We forget what the goal is. Right. And it's very... Uh, so again, it I, and the difficulty is, again, most of us are, or a lot of us are, are operating by default rather than by design, um, right? I mean, in other words, uh, you know, in a, a, let's just take students for a minute. You know, it's kind of like, why are they in... College, I actually is another one of the questions I start out with, like, what are you doing here? And of course, the answer to that question is, well, this is a required course at the University of St. Thomas, right? <laughs> They're not there because they they yeah. like live their whole lives to be there. They yeah. are required to be there. But I said, but look, that just merely, you know, provokes another question. What are you doing here at the University of St. Thomas? What are you doing in a university? And the truth is, for most of them, it was like, well, you went from grade one to 12. And when, you know, certain people with certain cultural expectations go from grade 12 to grade 13 and then grade 14. Right. And, you know, and they go to college because that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And they sort of sleepwalk through it because they don't know really why they're there or what they want to achieve. Doctor, what, what are the implications of well, first of all, I, 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 uh, that observation resonates with me, and I've, I've, uh, I've spent many years and come to the same, a similar kind of conclusion. But what are the implications of that for, let's say, on the parish level of faith formation for for young kids? And, well, 
Go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, no. You go ahead. Finish your question. I'm sorry. I thought you were well, I, I, I was part of a, a, a planning meeting about a week ago, and uh, the question came up about uh, uh, including um, adoration uh, in, uh, in the agenda for, for these young kids. These mm -hmm. are middle school, high school age kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was some resistance from some of the adults on doing that because, uh, um, uh, and the rationale was that kids like to be interactive and, uh, and learning is an active process. And there was, a, there was really kind of a, uh, a resistance to quiet time in, 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 in front of Jesus and, and reflecting. Um, mm. Uh, and, uh, um, and I, I just found it really, really curious. Even there was, there was resistance on the adults part to integrate that kind of an experience into the, uh, into the agenda for the kids as part of their faith formation. So did you ask the adults whether they like quiet time? Well, I, I'm going to guess I'm, I'm going to I imagine they, they maybe did, but uh, you know, it is a funny thing that we sort of think of young people as, you know, a different species or something, you know, like, and so that, I mean, you know, if you like they really a book or you music. like music, then, and they, and you value time where you can be, you know, quiet and make all the noise of the world go away and kind of focus on what's really important, then, yeah, you know, look, yeah. I mean, kids are, kids that's true but um then you develop in them but i you know look i i don't have any answers for your for your parish other than again i my first question would be would do you value this sort of time and if they don't well then that's your answer and if they do it's like well why wouldn't you think you know i mean people who who do that and i'm one of those people you know find such time really really extremely valuable. I can tell you for example that my poet wife who uh was not a catholic when i married her but she's a catholic now she's still very new in a certain way in terms of the Catholicism thing. Um, one of the things that she really values is, uh, yeah, time in front of the Eucharist, strangely. And I mean, again, it's not something she grew up with or, you know, deeply pious. It's just a very, very uh, powerful uh, thing. And so you might say, yeah, look, again, I, nothing's going to work for everybody, I suppose. Yes. Some people like the yeah. rosary. Some people like, yeah. you know, the liturgy of the hours. Um, but there, I think there's going to be a group of of young people that are going to really say, yeah, this is some of the best time because I just yeah. am quiet. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it yeah. is something you have to, I suppose, learn to, you know, quiet all those voices and just sort of be, but uh, uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, you know, again, and by the same token, it, it's, it's hard to sit by yourself and be quiet. Right. We like to divert ourselves, yeah. you know, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I know yeah. that. I mean, I look, I'm no better than anybody else in that regard. Okay. I mean, it's like, yeah, when you're sitting at mass, I mean, we all have that thing. We're sitting at mass, like, oh, here's the word of God. All right. And here's the Eucharistic prayer and Christ is, you know, and you're thinking about like, hmm, my shoes need to be polished. You know, my, what am I going to wear to that, you know, conference next week? I should have, do I have that tie? Some, anyway, just stupid yeah. stuff that couldn't yeah. be any less important when yeah. Jesus is, you know, the incarnation is in front of you anyway. Is in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, I have to interject a question. It wasn't on our list, but of what we presented to you, but you had said that you, you know, you, you would, weren't born Catholic. Was it, was it a quest for truth 
that brought you into the Catholic Church? Was it St. John Paul II? What what drew you? Yeah, uh, yes to both. Uh, um, it, it was really, uh, the way I oftentimes describe it is to say, well, when I was a freshman uh, in college, um, for the first time, you know, I started to read things like Plato and uh, Aristotle and Cicero and and, and Augustine, and um, I became convinced there were such things as truth and goodness and beauty. These were the fit objects of study, and one ought to devote one's life to that. And um, I oftentimes then say, and once I had sort of put myself on that road, it had only one real end, right? Um, now, of course, that might seem presumptuous to be, but anyway, but that was my um, determination about that. Now, I wasn't received into the church until my senior year, so this wasn't like, you know, a short process, and um, I had a lot of intellectual questions that needed to be sort of resolved and things in my life that needed to change. Fortunately, I was with a group of people who took these kinds of serious fundamental questions very seriously, yeah. And uh, that was really important for me. So community was very important. And of course, when people say, oh, so this is an intellectual conversion, I say, well, yes, uh, you know, there was a lot of thinking and reading and talking with people about it. But of course, in the end, it's always the Holy Spirit, right? But um, so yeah, intellectual, but also, you know, um, anyway, I, I don't know if that answers your, your fully yeah, your, your really question. Much. Sure and then, of course, Pope yeah, John Paul II. Yeah. Pope John Paul II was a big part of that in his own way. Augustine was a bit. I mean, again, like uh, a couple of things. First of all, you know, you read Augustine, you read Thomas Aquinas, for example, and even Aristotle and Plato. Uh, I don't want to say even. I mean, like, and even when I was reading them, I thought to myself, you know, who takes these guys seriously anymore, right? I mean, who? says to themselves, oh, I have to right, think through this and I have to care about what these people say. And I thought to myself, you know, the only people who do that are Catholics, right? Nobody else, I mean, you know, there's plenty of people who like read Aristotle and Plato or whatever, but they don't really care. <laughs> They're not gonna change their lives mm -hmm. or something because they found something in Aristotle. Oh no, Aristotle's right. I have to live differently, right? I have to develop the virtues. And I thought, you know, I'm getting like, plenty of people sort of read Aristotle, but they didn't want to develop the virtues at all. It was just an intellectual game. Um, and I, that was the one thing I thought, well, I, I'm not interested in the intellectual game. I like, this is either about your life or forget it, you know, because I was a chemistry major, you know, I didn't really, this is stuff was stuff I, I was doing on I, the side. I noticed that uh, you're, you're, uh, well, two things that, uh, uh, that struck me as I looked at your resume and, and your publications. One was, uh, and your your interests are are in many wide divergent areas, uh, starting as a chemistry major. But the other is, um, I'd like to look at your work schedule. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, pretty lazy, actually, if you want to know, you know. Well, I, I look at your output, your your productivity is just, uh, <laughs> holy smokes, it's breathtaking. Uh, <laughs> as, but, yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, actually, um, well, thank you. That's very kind. It's funny. I was just looking at a, um, the uh, the uh, publications of a professor here at the University of Texas uh, at Austin, a classicist who uh, is very interesting. Um, anyway, I don't mention his name. It's not important. But anyways, he's, he's emeritus. And uh, somebody said, you should go meet him. He's very, very nice. And he's in every day and stuff. And so anyway, I was looking at his stuff. And I realized, oh, my God, <laughs> right? There's always somebody who's got, you know, 
800 more publications than you do. And it's, you know, like, oh, author of 40 books. And you're like, oh, oh, 40 books. <laughs> well, oh my God. I you know, know, like if I had three it. lifetimes, I'm not publishing anyway. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but it's very kind of you to say, right? I mean, well, so. Um, well, there's a, a quick observation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'd like to uh, ask the professor about some, some work that we've started to do in our, in our ministry. And, and uh, we're being influenced by uh, 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 a Thomistic approach to psychology hmm. uh, and uh, a Thomistic uh, kind of anthropology of, of man. And, and uh, is that a topic that you've spent some time uh, working with? Oh, yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, I'm not uh, as one of the things about having a broad education is people don't uh, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're just supposed to specialize. So I, I've always been annoying to administrators when they're like, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing philosophy and theology. No, no, no. Which one are you doing? Yeah. Like, well, I'm, I'm doing philosophy and theology. And like, no. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, but no, uh, I, I do. Uh, it's an interest of mine. And well, look, I, anything in a way, Thomistic is probably going to be uh, a good thing to spend your time on. Um, if you haven't seen the volume uh, that came out through the Divine Mercy University on uh, the human person, um, there it's very, very good, right? And we'll give you uh, a very nice um, sort of background. And uh, one of the pieces of that was written by my friend Paul Gondreau, who talks about, um, who's, who's trained at Freeburg and um, uh, under survey, Father Survey Pinkers. And that tradition has spent a lot more time uh, dealing with the passions, right, or the emotions. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that's where modern psychology has had to fill in and has done a, a good job in some ways of filling in where modern moral philosophy has simply dropped out. In other words, for much of modern moral philosophy, other than the virtue ethics tradition, but anyway, much of modern moral philosophy, they treat human beings as a kind of thinking thing right? Like Descartes says. And so the fact that they have emotions and passions is kind of, dis well, that would get in the way. Why do we have to think about that, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you look at Thomas Aquinas, there's a whole long section on what they call the passions, right? Which we call the emotions. It's a, a sort of a similar uh, idea. If you think about it, actually passions as opposed to actions, right? Passions are things that happen to you, Right. You you get frightened. You don't choose to be frightened. Right. right. And emotions the same way. You're like moved, emoted. Right. In other words, the, the, the root is the same sort of thing. The idea is it's something that, you know, you don't necessarily control its origin in you. You see something and you desire it. You know, you're you're frightened. You get angry. Right. Things trigger your anger. Um, and so, again, Aquinas has given a lot of thought to that. And at the Divine Mercy University, um, they have had, you know, people like Paul Vitz from NYU and and um, Jonathan Robinson, who's now dead. And so anyway, had all sorts of interesting people come who had background in uh, the history of psychology and thinking about psychology and um, tried to put together and did put together you know, a wonderful volume on, you know, the nature of the human person. Um, including this dimension that you seem to be interested in, namely, um, you know, the psychology side. But I think the 
virtue of their approach is precisely that they want to see the and Thomas's approach, etc. They want to see the passions in uh, the context of the whole uh, understanding of the human person, right, right? Who's both rational and emo, you know, and bodily, and you know, it, communal. Finds themselves in a context, right? Uh, can talk through their emotions with other people. Anyway, yeah. so if you haven't found that volume on the nature of the human person. I have a, a link to it uh, actually on my website. We can deal with Great. that. Okay. Thank you oh, for that. Can you give us your website? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, actually, it's on my course website, wow. <laughs> which, which, um, if you want to look at the course I do on Christ and the moral life, that's a generally accessed uh, website. And um, I mean, you can look at it. St. Tom, I'm sorry, it's t4.stom.edu slash users slash smith slash christ moral life okay so that's why i was saying maybe i would just okay. send it to you but you have another website a general website right i do, For, I do. that one that one is t4.stom.edu slash users slash smith slash portfolio because originally i used it as my uh, portfolio for uh um tenure and promotion but now it's okay, just we got that on record. We got that on record. So if we okay. start All right. planning, we'll find you. Right. Right. We can, we can include include that in the in the notes for the uh right. podcast. I well. just mean that like again, if you want, I can make sure I send you that uh volume. Okay. It's a very good thing, right? I mean, again, these are guys who are uh men and women, right, who are uh really trying to think deeply about precisely the question you're thinking about, right? Like, how can we integrate uh, the insights of modern psychology into a fuller picture of uh, human anthropology, right, as understood by the church, right, that's, and um, that's right. divine Catholic. revelation, right? What do we know uh, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ about, uh, what does it reveal to us about human nature? Yes. Is that yes. what drew you through with, with John Paul II? Was, was it some of his theology of the body work or? That was important. Um, yeah. I mean, again, you know, well, look, in a sense for somebody who was like me, okay, who um, was a kind of secular humanist kid of the usual sort, right? I mean, you know, does it make sense? I mean, I, my parents had been somewhat religious when I was younger, but then they fell away from any kind of church you know, they became nuns, should we say, N-O-N-E-S, right? And yes. I was I was happy enough when I got to be, when we moved and they moved away from a church they had sort of been going to, I was happy enough not to waste a Sunday doing any of that sort of stuff. Anyway, so when I got to Cornell College, I was not, you know, religious in any way, shape or form. I was, again, your basic secular humanist kid. And um, so for, as for me, as I think many people find this, when you all of a sudden start to find uh, religious people, uh, you know, people who are interested in religion, who actually are thinking, right, like really interesting stuff, it's quite a shock, right? I remember, I mean, when I was in high school, I sort of thought of religious people as, you know, like they like guitar music and waterfalls and 
singing kumbaya and stuff. And yeah, that's very, that's very sweet. I just, you know, it wasn't anything I wanted to do. I just have, I mean, I like waterfalls, but I mean, I just like, I don't like sitting around campfires and singing kumbaya and guitar music and stuff. I just like, okay. Again, I, it was just like, that's very sweet for them. And if you like that sort of thing, you know, in the same way that if you like jazz, you go to jazz bars and stuff. But if you don't like jazz, you probably don't go to jazz bars. And I was like, okay, there, there you go. So the notion that there were actually people who were religious, like Augustine, who really were thinking, or Aquinas, who are just smart as a whip. And you're like, wow, okay, this is a whole different universe of stuff, right? And people who not only are smart as a whip, you know, Aquinas, but smarter than Aristotle. Okay, now we're in a different universe completely. So anyway, that was, you know, for somebody who was studying chemistry to, you know, like go over and then to be looking at some of this stuff and realizing that there were just really, really smart people who had real arguments and were really thinking through some of the most serious questions. That was really important. And of course, John Paul II was an impressive character in all sorts of ways and intellectually. Yeah, you, it, it, your your description of your um, of your development is just so refreshing because I you're really talking about intellectual curiosity, right? You're trying to make sense out of out of uh, this thing. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, the, the Catholic uh, and, thing, right? Yes, yeah, and, and and hey, that would be a great publication name, right? The Catholic yeah, thing. I know, but I, that's. But, what drew I, me I to find, it in the first place, actually, right? Was I thought, wow, what a great name, the yeah, Catholic but, thing. But your 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 curiosity is really uh, in pursuit for truth uh, is really what led you down this road uh, that you just described. And yeah, I, I mean that's I, that's why when when the, there's a classic phrase that um, philosophy begins in and science, I mean, you know, scientia, science, knowledge um, begins in wonder. Uh, that's a, an old tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks and Plato, it's just philosophy begins in wonder. Um, and it is uh, sort of tragic that um, people, uh, I'm just talking to somebody last night about um, teaching mathematics and um, how tragic it is that people don't have wonder about mathematics, you know, that it just yes. becomes this kind of mechanism. And people don't think about number or what mathematic is or ma- mathematics does. Yes. Um, and that, uh, anyway, yeah, you know, it's it's just it's it is sad that we somehow our educational system, and I don't want to blame systems. I mean, it's it is hard, right? Anyway, that that we get caught up and we we lose our sense of wonder I've about wonder the world, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So that we ask these big questions like, why? Why does that happen? Why does it do? Yeah. You know, look, that's the root of science. Clearly, everybody knows. That. I mean, everybody should know that. You know, like why? Why would that happen? Why does that do that? What would if we? You know. That that's what makes what drives science, right? Not yeah. desire for Nobel prizes, but a desire to kind of say, yes. I don't, yes. I don't really understand this. Why? Yes. And again, yes. who says that? Aristotle, right? Yes. Man by nature desires to know and to know the causes of things, right? Can I can I ask one one last question? And the the clock is ticking. I know, but uh, sure. um, oh, we're just, I feel like we're just getting started. Yes, yes. Um, there's just there's a synod thing that's about to unfold in front of us, right? It's like the Catholic thing, only this is a synod yes, thing. The synod yeah. thing and the synod and on I, synodality, yeah. And I'm 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 reading the uh 
the back and forth between the five cardinals and and the pope mm-hmm. and and uh and it it seems that uh part of what's going on is uh has to do with this an- anthropology of the human being and uh, the view of the human being um is is that changing uh, is it open to change uh, um i i so appreciated john paul II's uh use of that phrase the anthropology of man and, and or of the person and doing his theology of the body work and uh i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on 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 all of that well i uh you have somebody here who's off uh praying for um this uh um you know podcast that's probably the best thing you can do i imagine right for the synod on synodality i have no uh particular insight on, you know, what's going to happen at the Synod on Synodality any more than anybody else does. I mean, I okay. actually, I, I try to spend uh, the least amount of time that I can on thinking about uh, things in the Vatican of that sort. Now, again, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of papal teaching, any, anything like that. I merely say that, like, there's, there's a kind of politics to the Vatican or even in parishes, you know, like what's happening in the parish council, what do they want here? And there's people and it's kind of like, or university, same thing. You know, there's always disputes about stuff. Um, I try to, as much as possible, not pay much attention because there's more important things to think about like Jesus and salvation and, you know, love and what it means to love God and love your neighbors yourself. Like each day you get up and you say to yourself, well, I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbors myself. What does that mean? I mean, what am I supposed to do? How could I, you know, structure my life today to do that? And also interesting things like, gee, what is mathematics and how do triangles work? I don't know, you know, stuff, interesting stuff. And that's less interesting. And, um, but having said that, like, I don't want to downplay your question. It's not like it's unimportant. Yes, I, I think you're right. They would be well uh, advised, should we say, um, and maybe well advised to think about whatever they're going to think about in terms of uh, the, the anthropology, as we say, the philosophy of the human person or the theology of the human person that has been established over generations by the church and especially given attention since the Vatican Council by people and before actually there had been a kind of Christian humanism and uh, which culminated in the Second Vatican Council. John Paul II and Benedict were very good about reaffirming this and um, yeah they would be uh, again well advised to do that now because particularly because that was an anthropology that was based on uh, the incarnation, right? I mean, God, that passage in uh, Gaudium et Spes, the uh, pastoral constitution on church in the modern world, which John Paul II quoted in every one of his encyclicals, was that it's in the mystery of the incarnation that the mystery of man takes on light, Gaudium et Spes 22. And um, so they think of themselves as enunciating a anthropology, as it were, based on God revealing. In other words, if we take, let me take a step back. If we think that man, as Christians, and not only Christians do, right, man is made in the image of God. If God has revealed himself in and through, most fully, in and through the person of Jesus Christ, then by looking at Christ, we can understand what it is to be fully, truly human, right? What it is to be in the image of God. So God, by revealing himself to man, 
reveals man to himself, to put it in another way, right? And so by looking at the incarnation, we understand something more about who we are and who we're truly meant to be. Because as fallen creatures, right, um, we oftentimes, you know, if you say, what are human beings like? The answer is, well, they're cruel, they're selfish, right? They're uh, foolish. They are ruled by their passions. And I mean, right, like there's all sorts of problems that we have. But if we understand how God reveals himself in and through Christ, and we understand something more about the triune God, right? How God is this eternal communion of love. Then we understand that the claim is that this is we understand more about what it is to be Christian and we're not guided by, you know, our foolish opinions. Yeah. And God then is that is unchanging. All right. It's not like I mean, we might say whether it's true or not that human beings change much over time. And I have I mean, they do in certain ways. I myself am a little skeptical about the degree in which, you know, people suggest human beings change. Um, I worry about things. I imagine people in the Roman world worried about things. I have altruistic tendencies. I imagine people in the Roman world have altruistic. I don't know. I never think of myself as quite different from the mass of humanity. But um, however much that's true, uh, certainly what it means to be in the image of God um, and, you know, in the way that God wills is uh, not going to change. So that's a touchstone for us. Yeah. yeah so yeah, one hopes they can go with that. So one hopes they keep going back to that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, really. And yeah, way. well, you know, I mean, no, I mean, in a way, in terms of the human reality, I mean, we have nuclear power. I mean, people will say like, well, we have this technology. And the point is, yeah, we do. Right. There's there's I mean, there's new stuff that way. But then you're right. Ecclesiastes is kind of like, but in the end, you know, you go out, you do your daily work, you know, because what do you think? Yeah. Right. Um, everybody's going to die in the end okay right um but that's a beautiful thing yeah that inspires wonder right isn't that the reality that real inspires true wonder yeah no that is true i mean and for that you should read my book from here to eternity i didn't think of that just to pump that book but anyway but it is i think it is important that we have that thing because in fact if you look at the ancient greeks always when they tell these stories about immortality it always ends very badly right the desire for immortality is in every person they understand but the reality of actual human immortality is always very bad right um so uh anyway yeah there is a way in which people who are granted immortality always wish for death because it's just a very bad thing so there is a gift on the other hand Throughout the scriptures, it's death is always the enemy, right? Because it's oblivion. And so it's a great gift uh, that we have this idea, right? And this revelation of something that transcends death, a different kind of life. But anyway, I don't know whether we want to go there right at the moment. Yeah. But, well, um, this is this is the topic of your book, though, your newest book. Yeah, uh, no. And I'm sorry. I really didn't mean to go there. I somehow well, no, anyway, I'm glad we, you did. Really akin to what what we we uh, we are doing, we we call uh, what we do the restoration of the human person in the grand, uh, just the context of of the ministries that we have, mm-hmm. and we call it return to Eden because really that is who we are, that is what we're doing, that is we're returning to that place of of Eden, right? So there is that destination, and everything that we do is part of that journey and it's God ordained and it's God um, 
it's blessed in, in many ways. So mm-hmm. we, w- w- that's how we approach our ministry. So just, it, it, just so you remember, I've been reading, just writing about this actually is a really wonderful book by uh, uh, Anglican theologian, Oliver O'Donovan. Anyway, he points this out. And I think it's important actually that um, even in Eden, right. Uh, we would have needed to be elevated, right. When we return to that state, we're returning merely to the state where now, right, we're free to be elevated, right? And it's interesting because, in fact, if you uh, have read Dante, um, the earthly paradise is uh, not in heaven. It's actually at the top of Mount Purgatory. And so after Dante has reached, uh, you know, the earthly paradise, the Garden of Eden at the top of Mount Purgatory, we still got you know, pur- purifications and he's got a long way to go. Yeah. All right. Now he's just sort of reached like, okay, uh, what is that in the a monopoly, you know, return to uh, the beginning, you know, oh, and yeah. to go. return to go and don't collect $200 or something like that. Yes, um, yes, so anyway, yes. there's a kind of like, okay, now you're back at where you needed to be to get going anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well put, well put. Yeah. Very cool. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? I don't. I mean, I could stay here all day, but I really appreciate your time, uh, Doctor Smith. That is wonderful. I got nothing else to do. I'm, you know, uh, as I told, I'm totally lazy. We could simply talk all day. I, whenever my students come to me, and I say, look, eh, the problem isn't coming to talk to me. The problem is uh, you have to keep track of your own time because I have no sense of time. So I will have been in uh, class for, you know, 25, 30 minutes and I'll look and I'll think I've been there for about five minutes and I'll look at my watch and go, oh, my God, I got like, you know, 20 minutes to get through. Anyway, so, yes, I have no sense of how long we've been doing this so we could do it uh, all day, but you, you probably have important things to do. So, you know. You know what that means, though? That means that you're in your true vocation, because when you lose yourself in time that that way, that means that you're, you know, you're doing what God has ordained you to do. And there's no and there's no concept of that. That happens when I write. Does it happen when you write? Yeah. When you write books, too? Weirdly, I never expected myself to be that way in any way, shape or form. I was and still uh, not a good writer, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so the fact that writing has become that you know, where time goes, um, yeah. is very strange to me. I, again, I, so for those people who are in your audience who are like, yeah, I'm not a very good writer. It's really hard for me, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if they're in high school and college all the way through graduate school, you know, Oh, how did I get to be in graduate school? I'm such a terrible writer. I mean, how do I write things for the Catholic thing? I'm serious. It's like, but, um, you know, if you just keep writing every day, it, it does get better, strangely enough. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I always tell people that like, oh, you wrote a lot. You must have, you know, if it's like natural writer or something. No, 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 absolutely not. Okay. Very, very, again, always thought I would uh, be a person who would, you know, oral teaching that I sort of thought. And uh-huh. when students ask me, um, why did you become a teacher? Uh, I said, well, because I didn't want to get a real job. You know, <laughs> I would spend all my time sitting around talking to people endlessly and, you know, one day I thought to myself, I wonder whether somebody would pay me to do this. I didn't really kind of do anyway, but that's what I tell my students. They laugh. And, you know, I yeah, think and yeah, I said, yeah. so what a scam, you know, like I just get to come in and like talk to people for hours and hours and hours and they actually pay me for this. Yeah. Not a lot, but OK, they I mean, you know, I yeah. get enough to like eat. And um, so, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of a it's kind of a scam. I feel bad. Like wow. they're paying all this money. Um 
What makes me feel bad though is all the money isn't coming to me. But anyway, but it would make me feel worse if all the huge tuition, you know, that they were paying to the college was coming to me because I'm just enjoying myself. So um, yeah, I should feel worse than I do and have less fun in the classroom. (laughs) It's like here, I I mean, you know, I'm in a podcast. I really- speaking like a true Catholic right now. I I should have less fun. Yeah, exactly. I should suffer through these things. Right. I always, it's sort of where he's like, Oh, is this podcast going to be like, and I always have fun in them. And, um, and so I should, I should, I really, I don't know. I should have less fun. I think. Does, it, does that mean you'll entertain a, a future invitation, uh, invitation from oh. us to come back? Anytime. Oh, okay. good. Right. Okay. Like, I don't know if you have like a half hour, we'll come back. No, <laughs> anytime, anytime. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, this is so wonderful. I love that you're teaching young people how to think. And getting them in touch with those old guys because those old guys really know what they're talking about, and yeah. uh, it'll really—it's really. And, and, and by guys, we mean—and I'm not saying this is to be woke, but we mean men and women. Here's why. I'm sorry. I just say this because when uh, you decide to throw in like Therese of Lisieux or uh, Catherine of Siena or you know uh, Hildegard of Bingen or something like that. Now that's really serious, right? I mean, there's Ambrose and there's Augustine and whatever. You throw in a few of those sort of women, they are rigorous in a way that, or you read Perpetual and Felicity, they're tough. Mostly with people like, you stay away from, you know, do people stay away from their women? And I I say, I don't think they're staying, they're staying away from them because they're just so rigorous and tough. And it's a vision which is, way beyond what you're going to get in, uh, you know, Augustine or Aquinas and stuff like that. So I think it's well, Edith Stein. Have you? Ha- oh, yeah. There's another one. Edith Stein. I mean, they're just they're tough, right? Uh, you don't okay. get sweetie pie stuff there anyway. But let's. Oh, there, there's our next podcast. There is the next topic of the pod, the next podcast. OK, whatever For you sure. want. Right. Okay. You the can see, like, I'll just talk about anything, even though I don't All know right. anything. About That's it. awesome. Great. All right. Well, thank, thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. Great so to meet much. you. Yeah. Take care. We are grateful that you joined us today for another episode of the Mission Revive podcast. We humbly ask for your prayers as we continue in the mission entrusted to us to evangelize and revive hearts with Jesus. We would also ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor of this podcast or making a financial contribution to support this growing ministry. You can do this by visiting our website at revivehopeandhealing.com or through our Revive Hope and Healing Ministries patron page. We cannot do this without you. Thank you.